0: And to have you here today. Well, we're grateful that you've come. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Randy, and uh, I've been off a few weeks on sabbatical and uh, have returned, and uh, I'm excited to jump back into things. Before I do, let me just say uh, Deanne's story is so amazing, and uh, she has written two books. She has got several degrees. Uh, she has a twin three year olds, uh, or three month old, three year olds, three little ones, any, uh, two little ones, anyway, about three or so. And uh, it's an amazing story, and uh, we could probably take all of our time listening to her, what God has taught her and how her life has changed and given her an amazing life. And, uh, and we are blessed to be able to be a part of that because we've supported uh, Refuge for Women for many years, and uh, we have uh, the beginnings of it right here in Kentucky, in, in Garrett County uh, is where it is. So you could volunteer, get to know more about it and certainly refer people to that if, if that uh, would be appropriate. So uh, it's amazing, and we're blessed to be a partners with, with them. At any rate, good to be back, and uh, thank you all for the cards. I got, we got so many cards uh, last week, and we just had so much fun opening them up and, and uh, reading them and just hearing your blessings and your encouragement. Uh, so thank you so much for the cards and letters and blessings, and it is, it is really good to be back. Um, Today, we're going to jump right in. I want to thank our guys who preached uh, the last four weeks, five weeks, and did an amazing job, just carried on. I know I wasn't even missed, and so that makes me feel really, really good and I appreciate that. I I love that these guys can just step in and and go. But today, uh, we're going to continue on our study in the book of Acts. And you know, the book is called The Acts of the Apostles, but it it might better be entitled The Acts of the Holy Spirit, because in this book, we read about uh, the extraordinary God who chose to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And we've already just seen some amazing things that that God has done through his Holy Spirit as he stepped in to the lives of people who surrendered to Christ and and began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ all around the world. And so the setting of this book, the scripture, is in the the AD 30s, and it happens in a city called Jerusalem, which was the capital city of the Jewish people that day. And by the way, we should be praying for Israel uh, as they are in the midst of a huge war, for sure, uh, for their very survival. Uh, but that is the setting that we look back in, into that culture in that time. At that time in, in, uh, in, in history, Jerusalem was under the control of the Roman Empire. They've always been oppressed down through the years uh, since they kind of walked away from God. But at this time, the Roman Empire uh, occupied and, uh, and led in all of the, most of the known world at the time. They were the most prosperous, the largest, the most uh, powerful nation in the world. And uh, what's interesting is kind of a study about the Roman people is that the citizens lived lavish lifestyles. They had multiple religions, multiple gods. They had a lot of, uh, they tolerated a lot of religions, a lot of diversity, uh, homosexuality, bisexuality, living together before marriage, adultery, child sex, all those things were practiced openly. And they also practiced child sacrifice, giving their children up and away to all sorts of things. In other words... They were a lot like Americans. They were a lot like our culture today, unfortunately, very similar to how we live. But in the midst of all this, God chose to start His church. The church began, the church began to grow, in fact, to expand and explode. We're going to see that very shortly. But as you can imagine, the church had a lot of opposition. The, see, the world of that day didn't like the church any more than our world likes us today. Because we press back against the sin in the world, and that's not very popular, right? And oftentimes, we struggle to connect with the culture as well. We struggle to find our place in the culture. You know, sometimes I think we aren't really honest with people when we introduce them to Christ. We tell them that if you will give your life to Christ, things will be so much better for you. If you give your life to Christ, then He's going to forgive you all of your sins and give you a new life. And whenever you die, you're going to go to heaven. It's going to be amazing. And all that is true. But what we sometimes omit to mention is that in between giving your life to Christ and and being forgiven. And the day that you go to heaven, there could be some hard times. There can be some difficult times. Some people could hate us just because we're Christians, just because we believe certain things. They hate us for that. We don't understand that. You might lose a job in some situations because you're a Christian. People could say some terrible things about you. You could be taken to court because of what you believe. You know, in the country of Finland, maybe you've seen this, uh, which is also a democracy like we are, and which champions free speech, one of their parliament members is facing her second trial for hate speech because she made a social media post simply explaining the classical Christian view of marriage and sexuality. The same thing the church has taught for 2,000 years. All She, she didn't criticize, she just said, this is what I believe. And then in England, a woman was arrested because she might be praying outside of an abortion clinic. She's standing there with her head bowed. She was arrested for that because she might be praying. And you know what? I think in many cases in America likely may not be far behind these other countries in these cases. And both of those defendants in those cases are very outspoken. And they insist, you know, that Christians must stand for their faith or risk being even further limited for what we believe. And we've talked about this before. In fact, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. You might wonder, well, I don't feel like I've ever been persecuted. Well, maybe that might be because your light is not very bright. Maybe no one knows. Maybe you've not been as outspoken or as open about your faith as you should be, because if you're trying to live a life for Christ, you will speak out and you will face some opposition or perhaps even persecution. And there are different levels of that. You know, there's overt persecution where you get thrown to the lions. And then there's covert persecution where you get thrown to the critics. There's overt persecution where they silence you by killing you, which is true in a lot of places around the world. And there's covert persecution where they silence you by shaming you or by canceling you. There's covert persecution where you have to die for Christ and then there's covert persecution where you struggle and you are attacked just simply for living for Christ. So there's different kinds, but the goal of all persecutions is to try to stop you from talking about Jesus. Now, i bring that up today because that's kind of where we are. We're in the book of Acts, again, chapter 4 which is a continuing story of two men, Peter and John, who were followers of Jesus Christ. They went up to the temple to pray. If you were here a few weeks ago, you heard this story a couple times, probably. They met a man who was lame from birth, who's begging for uh, money from people who passed by. And they admit to him, we don't have a lot of money, but we do have one thing we can do. We can actually heal you. And so they healed him in the name of Jesus Christ. And, you know, at that point, like Jesus, sometimes they would say, okay, you're healed, but don't make a big deal about it. But he didn't obey them, obviously. He went, uh, jumped to his feet, ran into the temple, started proclaiming loudly what had happened to him. Everyone knew him because they had seen him for probably years stand outside the temple. He's worshiping and praising God. He's telling people, people, Peter and John uh, what they had done, the name of Jesus, and then, you know, this gives them a, a platform, a platform to be able to, to preach Jesus and call for repentance, but it also gives them something else. It also gives them a free trip to jail. They, they take them to jail. You see, nobody was upset because the man was, was healed, but they were all upset because of who they were preaching about, who, G, who, who did heal him, and, uh, and, and the name of Jesus through which he was healed. You know, I've noticed this down through the years that you oftentimes don't get in trouble for what you do for people, but you get in trouble for what you say, what you believe. You know, we can go out and do all sorts of good things in our community, and everybody loves that, and you you help people out, and that's great. But when you start talking about why you do it and who you do in the name of, that's when people start pushing back. That's why a lot of people just want to do good things in Jesus' name and never really bring it up. You know, I have friends who are in the recovery ministry and uh, recovery work with people in addiction, and, and they, they love to be helped, but sometimes they're told, you can't talk about Jesus though. And, and my friend says, I, I'm not going to work here. I'm not going to be a part of that. So sometimes our world loves what we can do in the name of Jesus, but they don't want to hear about Jesus and the difference he needs to make. You know what? In the Bible, service and miracles were oftentimes done to get people's attention so that they would simply listen to and about Jesus and about uh, what their greatest need is. The greatest need that people have is not to be fed, even though they may be hungry, not to be healed, even though they may be sick. Their greatest need is Jesus. And so the miracles in the Bible were done to give Jesus the chance to speak or to give his followers a chance to talk about Jesus. Jesus. So what happens, Peter and John are arrested, stuck in jail overnight. They're brought in the next day before the council uh, to be intimidated and commanded not to talk about Jesus. But this is what they said, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to man, or, or to you or to him. You be the judges, As for us. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's in Acts chapter four. I, Eric did a great job a couple of weeks ago talking about that. Unable to intimidate them, they threaten them, they set them free with threats and a warning in which they promptly ignore. So here we pick up the story in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they had prayed, the place where they were shaken, meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So here's what happened. Peter and John were not ruffled at all. They weren't afraid. They weren't, even though they were threatened, even though they had been through this, uh, you know scary situation. They went to where the other believers were having a prayer meeting, and they reported what had happened. And I think from the text, it seems like they were almost excited about the whole thing. They were excited about being arrested and being threatened and being able to preach Jesus in a, in a highly public place before you know, important rulers of the people that day. They were excited about it. And so when they went in, I almost envisioned them going high fives all the way around. You know, man, this is awesome. This is great. This is what Jesus said would happen. We finally got a chance to do this. This is wonderful. This is awesome. And they all began to thank God. They all prayed. They gave glory to God for all that had happened. They quoted from David back in Psalms chapter 2, where David had prophesied that earthly kings and rulers would oppose the chosen one of God, Jesus Christ, another prophecy that was fulfilled. And then they prayed for boldness and courage and more opportunities to share Jesus. And if you notice this, it says that their prayer was acknowledged by an earthquake, shaking the meeting place and a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, which gave them even more boldness. So what we find is when they were pressured and when they were persecuted, they were more empowered to do more and more and talk about Jesus more. So what we kind of see here is the church is kind of getting its feet under itself. They're beginning to to see what the reality is going to be of their existence and how they're going to survive, and they're learning how to deal with opposition. They're learning how to boldly proclaim the gospel, even though they're commanded not to. You know, I think these are lessons that we need to learn ourselves, because today many of us are kind of intimidated by culture around us. And so the Scripture kind of gives us a few principles that we need to remember. Some things we're going to kind of look through that we pulled from this text here that, that tells us that we still have the same mission. The mission wasn't completed, has not been completed yet. We're still under the same command as they were to go. We're still under the same power of the Holy Spirit, and we ought to be sharing Jesus more freely, even though there may be Opposition. So let's look at some of the principles here. The first thing I think that jumps out is the, uh, imp- the inspiration and authority of the Bible. They knew what they were doing, and they knew who they were doing it for. They were under a command and a mission. You know, I think this is the biggest issue, especially of our world today. Is the Bible the inspired Word of God? Can we speak it with boldness and truth? Is it reliable? And once you answer that question, then everything else kind of falls into place, there are always going to be issues of disagreement out there. There's going to be small opinion issues. But the greater issues, we believe the Bible has the authority to, to, uh, to, to uh, solve those issues and those questions. So here's kind of the bottom line that I believe, that no matter what a person might say, true Christians believe in the Bible, non-Christians don't. It's kind of a dividing line out there. We live in a world where everybody believes, or most people say they believe in God. And most people would say that they believe in Jesus, but are we living it out? Are we living that out, or are we just saying that we that we believe that? To believers, the Bible is not a book written by people about God, but it's a book written by God through people. This is the Word of God. If it's a book written by God, then it's above all other books. And it's not subject to our opinions it doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter at all. I can get skewed off on some weird things, and a lot of it's based on my experiences and my thoughts and my preferences, but that, none of those things matter. God doesn't care what I believe. I don't, the world and the Word doesn't conform to, the, the, world, the Word doesn't conform to me, I conform to the Word. And that's so important for us to understand. If the Bible is written by God, then it's not just about God, but it's from God. It's from God. It's not a book about God that we can decide, do I like this part or not? It's a book from God to us. It's revelation, and we have to accept it as such. We believe this is the word of God and our sole and ultimate authority. So in verse 24, they begin praying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them? This is who they're reaching out to. They're under obedience to God and not to men, not human rulers. And they begin to quote his word in Psalms chapter 2, written by David, who was also led by the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a moment, the Old Testament, in his day about Jesus. See, the words of David here, they are as inspired as the words in any, any, any of the Bible. The words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of Peter, these are the words of God. This is the word of God. And when we understand that, we start saying, okay, we don't just pick out one little text here and we, you know, exploit what we think it might say, we take the Bible when it's whole. And we understand that every word is inspired by God. You know, today, one of my pet peeves is when people say, I know what the Bible says, but you know how I feel about, it? I just want to stop them right there. I want to scream, stop. Anything beyond that statement is going to be wrong. I don't, I don't care what you think. I don't care about any type of, of, of logic. Anything is beyond that's going to be wrong. We don't have the right to change or deny or adapt anything in the Word of God. We don't have the right to take out the things we don't like. You know, our third president of our country, Thomas Jefferson, he loved the moral teachings of Jesus. He would be what would be called a cultural Christian probably in his day. He loved the moral teachings of Jesus, but he denied the divinity of God, of Jesus. And so he compiled a, his own New Testament He cut out all the miracles. He cut out all the supernatural powers of God in Jesus' life, and he focused only on Jesus as a a man of morals. And he called this the philosophy of Jesus. You know, it's hard to disagree with the philosophy of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, love and kindness and grace and, and goodness, all those things, nobody disagrees with that. But what he cut out was the divinity part of Jesus, that he was the Son of God. He made these claims. You know, we know that's wrong. We would condemn that. But in all of us, probably in varying ways, do the same thing. We edit certain parts out, if not cutting out of our Bible, we edit it out that we don't like or agree with. The things that might address our own personal sin or the things that might address the people in our life that we care about. You know, I've heard people say, well, I know what they're doing. I know the Bible says it's wrong, but they're a really good person. And that doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. This is God's word. Accepting the Bible the inspired and authoritative Word of God is our call. It's our challenge. You know, it's described by an interesting term, and we don't use a lot of big terms because I have trouble pronouncing them for one thing, but uh, they're, they get confusing. But but there's a big word, a big term: verbal plenary inspiration, and that's kind of describes how we view the Word of God. Verbal means the very words of Scripture, not just the concept of Scripture, but the words of God and Scripture are inspired. The Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed. So it's verbal. It's the Word of God, not just the overall concept of God. The second uh, word is plenary, and that means the whole Bible, the whole Bible. So what that means is you can't say, well, that's the Old Testament, and we're not living under the Old Testament, so that doesn't count, right? Or, or those were, that's Paul's words. They're not as powerful as the words of Jesus. That's not true the Word of God, the whole book, all of it, every word is inspired. The word inspiration means that God inspired human writers and that they wrote with their own personalities and style. But overall, it's God's Word. It's God's Word. You know, a lot of people believe the Bible is the Word of God, and they would argue with that, but they don't read the Bible. And what we do is we hamper God speaking to us when we refuse to read His Word. I want to encourage you, if you believe the Bible is the Word of God, which I think we all probably agree on, I want to encourage you to start reading it more and making it a priority in your life, develop a habit of reading God's Word. So we have to understand the inspiration of God's Word. That's what they were operating under because God had said it, God, you know, that Jesus was His Son. They believed it. They were preaching it. The second principle here we see here is the presence of community, the importance of community. It says, when they left the chief priest where they had been, you know, intimidated and threatened, they went to their friends. They went back to other believers. The early church had a vibrant body, a vibrant community, and a unified community. You know, the reality is that most people who get connected into the church remain that way, raise their families, go on and live that out. But people who do not become a part of a community, of a church family, rarely end up remaining faithful to Jesus. That's just true. It's not a judgment call. It's just an obvious fact. So we encourage each other in community. That's why it's so important to belong to a church fellowship, a church to have a family to be a part of, and even beyond a large community, to be a part of a smaller community as well. Because community is a part of every facet of our Christian growth. We encourage each other and and we help each other and we pray for each other as we grow. So I want to encourage you to find a small community within our church to be a part of. We have staff members who are committed to that, who are focused on that. That's what they do. Eric has kind of moved into that role and he's always trying to find people to connect into groups and we would love to have you in a group. You know, Lori and I have been a part of many groups over the years And uh, uh, we've just had a a chance to be blessed by so many people. We still hold those people as some of our closest friends. Because the reality is that we all need other believers in our lives, and they need us. When our world world falls apart, or when we start struggling or kind of wandering, we need people who will help us pull us back together and connect us. We need those people in our lives. Peter and John had been arrested, they had been intimidated, probably the most threatening time of their life, and they just needed people to love them and support them. And so they went back to the friends and they got it. I mean, they crowded around them, they hugged them, uh, and they encouraged them. And the third principle is that they prayed with them. That is the power of prayer. They lifted their voice to God together. You know, a few weeks ago when we began this study, we talked about the importance of three things, obedience, fellowship, and prayer. We said that when Jesus... (laughs) <clears throat> went into heaven, he told his disciples to go to wait in Jerusalem, and to pray, and to fellowship together. And that's what they did. They went back to the upper room, they fellowship. they were united, they prayed together, and the Holy Spirit came. And once again, we've seen that same dynamic happens at another time of stress. They chose to obey God rather than men. They didn't stop what they were doing, but they went back, they gathered with other believers, and they began to pray. You know, I think this is, again, another reason why we need Christian friends around us. Non-Christian friends can give you counsel. They can give you sometimes probably decent advice. But non-Christian friends are not going to pray with you. They're not going to ask the Holy Spirit to give you power and wisdom and direction and guidance. They're not going to open the Bible up with you and seek direction and tell you uh, what what you might do as you counsel together. They're just not going to do that. And sometimes we rob ourselves because we go to people, probably good people, but may not be believers to get advice about decisions in life. Peter and John needed counsel. You know, they had been shaken a little bit. They needed encouragement. So they went to their Christian brothers and sisters together. They prayed with them and they began to connect and grow. And then things began to really move. There are these three things I think are crucial in your spiritual development to read the Bible and obey, find Christian fellowship, and pray together. And if you don't have these things, it's not likely that you will survive, to be honest with you spiritually. The likelihood is that one day you'll wander off finding something new, you'll walk away from Jesus. So it's important to have that. It really is. There's something special about Christians who come together to pray. You know, in our group, we fellowship, we have a great time, we laugh, probably talk on, and laugh almost too much a while, but then we get down and we study the Bible together. But some of the best moments that we have in our group is when we just pray together. Is when we just say, "You know what, we need to pray." Many times when there's a personal need or something that's pressing, we just stop everything, even for studying, and we gather around that person and we pray for them. It's a powerful time. In fact, as I was writing this this message, I was in a group text with our journey group for one of our members who was beginning uh, cancer treatment. And, and one of the texts that came, this is creative texting, uh, was a prayer. And I'm going to read that to you because uh, just it was so powerful. They wrote, "'Lord, Father, we thank you that we have friends to encourage and pray for us. We lift up our brother to you, Lord. Heal him, Lord. Strengthen him as he learns to completely trust you as he walks through the unknown.'" We give you all the glory and praise for what you're doing through him. The lives that he is touching are for you. Bless his path. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said amen. That was over text, and this guy lives in another state. He zooms in on our group, but we have that connection and that power. It's amazing. We need the word of God. We need fellowship, and we need prayer all the time, but especially when things are difficult and the prayer made an incredible impact to this group. The fourth principle here is that we have to trust the sovereignty of God in tough times. We have to trust the sovereignty of God in hard times. So the tide was turning against the church a little bit. Persecution was going to become more prevalent in the church. Peter and John had just experienced it. It's going to get worse. I warn you, we'll see that as we continue in this study. You now today in our world, anti-Christian uh, uh, sentiment is kind of moving. Anti-Christian morality, anti-Christian spirituality, all those things are growing. We see a growing movement around us. I hope that you understand that. Times are getting tougher for Christians who are truly trying to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, Christians today are called bigots, intolerant, hateful, unloving. Let me ask you, can you do that with any other religious group and get away with it? No, you can't do that with anybody else. But Christians, it seems like, are open, uh, open season on us uh, and fair game in culture and, and throughout the media. And, uh, and when it, when it seems like the culture is moving against us, which it is, the question we might ask is, where is God in this? Where is God in this? You know, the disciples um, might have said, well, I thought God was going to help us and make it easy after Jesus was gone. There were no promises on that, was it? We might say, where is God? Does God know what's going on down here? Does God care what's happening in my life? Can God do anything? If so, why doesn't He? And we begin to question the sovereignty and the power of God. These only come up when we're in tough times. When things are good, we're more likely to say, oh, God's blessing me, and everything's going great in my life. But when things are bad, we oftentimes begin to question, well, does God really care? And I think it kind of comes down to the question, how do we view the sovereignty of God? What does the sovereignty of God mean? Well, let's talk a little bit about it. Sovereignty doesn't mean that everything that happens is what God wants. Not everything that happens in our world is what God intends to happen. God has a will that he does makes happen, but sometimes God allows things to happen, right? Many of those things that God allows to happen are sin and sinful things, And sickness and illness and tragedy and, and persecution and everything else. God doesn't want those things to happen, but God allows those things. Because we're in a broken world, because we fell through sin. To say that God is sovereign means that God is above all things and over all things. And that when God chooses to do things, His will, His will will be done. But there are some things that are done in our world outside the will of God. And God permits it at this time no one can oppose God. And when he chooses to stop things, he will. But what God does allow to happen, God has a way of using that for his glory. The visual picture we have of God on his throne, ruling and reigning over everything in control, but allowing certain things to happen at this point. Romans chapter eight, which is uh, uh, verse 28, one of my favorite verses says, this is how God's power is for our ultimate good. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But do you notice what that word, one of those words says, all things. Is everything good? No. No, not everything is good that happens to us, but God works in the good and the bad for his glory. And when times are difficult for us, it's easy for us to understand or to wonder, is God on the throne? It's easy for us to doubt the sovereignty of God. It seems like somebody else is in charge right now. What happened to God? Isn't he still in charge? Somebody's in charge that doesn't care about me, that's not looking out for my good. But remember, in the midst of that, that God is on the throne, and look at a time when things were horrible, when it seemed like God was powerless. The time that His Son Jesus Christ was crucified—that's when you might say, "Well, wh- where was God at that point?" We might wonder why God didn't stop that. You know, in fact, it's in Acts four in this what the scripture we read it lists some people who thought they were in control and who thought they were sovereign that day. He talks about Herod and Pontius Pilate. Remember the trial of Jesus before each of those two, together with the Gentiles, those who were uh, wicked, the Roman empire, the people of Israel who conspired against Jesus. That was the Jewish people, the rulers. So you got all these people, the human rulers, and the the pagan power and the, the the evil, wicked religious leaders of that day, they all made a plan to get rid of Jesus. They thought they were sovereign. They had it under control. They had a trial. They thought they got to decide who lived and died that day. But they weren't in control, were they? Scripture says they did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. God was in control. God was just allowing them. They were doing God's will for him. Even though it broke God's heart to see his son die, it was God's will being played out again, which was prophesied in the past. The people were responsible, but God was still sovereign. You know, today when people do things that that God doesn't want them to do, then God can oftentimes use them as a part of his predestined plan. Now, when I sin, it's on it's me, it's my fault, but God is so big and God is so good that he can use even sin for good. The cross is an example of that. It was the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world. And yet it's one of the most wonderful things that ever happened in the history of the world for you and I, because God had a plan that was bigger than man's plan. God used their sin for his glory. Now, it would be great if we knew God's plan, if we were in on it, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great if we could say, I know things look bad, but man, you just wait and see what happens next, you know? We don't see that plan. We don't see it. Uh, the Scripture says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. One day we will look back and we'll see the power and the glory of God, the grace of God flowing into everything that happens in our life. At that point, it probably won't matter anyway, but we will see. For today, though, we have to trust. We have to trust in the sovereignty of God, that God can and will work even in the worst of circumstances, that God's in charge, God has a plan, and it is for our good. But only, the catch the the condition or exception only if we love Him, only if we are called for His purpose. Once we get outside of that, we're kind of on our own, and we're subject to what the world may happen in the world. But as we are following Him and loving Him and called for His purpose and in His will, all things will be for our good. You know what? This is this is what the early church discovered, and what we can discover today in our own lives if we are obedient to his word, acknowledge the inspired word of God, if we come together in fellowship and share and connect and pray and trust in the sovereignty of God, there is nothing that cannot be done. Nothing that cannot be done. We're going to see an example of that as the church literally turned the world upside down. And that accusation was made about them because these men had been with Jesus Let me remind you and kind of wrap up with a verse of Scripture that Jesus said about being opposed in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. This morning as we were praying before the service, I was thinking through the message, it doesn't ever kind of leave your mind what you're going to say. And I thought, you know what? Maybe people need to know why. Maybe before we leave this, we need to know why we are faithful, why we endure. And this is kind of it. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. The Bible talks about the crown that we will experience and in, in have an eternal life. When all of this is over and there will be a martyr's crown, those who have died for Jesus. But there will be a crown given to all who have lived for him. And that would be my challenge for you this morning, my challenge to say, guys, we got to keep in mind that God's still in control, no matter what, and be faithful to him, no matter what. And in the middle of all that, we preach Jesus. We speak Jesus. That's what we're all about. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. I'm going to be up front. Others will be up here as well. If you want somebody to pray with you, or you want to just come up and pray on your own, uh, we give you the chance to do that. But guys, let's pray for Let's pray for the message to go out. The the title of this series is Sent. We are sent. Let's remember that we're not just blessed. We are to be sent into the world. And guys, let's pray also uh, for the people around the world who are under persecution, other Christians, and the nation of Israel, which one day, the Bible says, will be directed in some way. We don't understand how. But the word will go out to the people of Israel as well. Let's pray for them. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today, and Lord, we thank you for your holy word. God, as we read through this scripture, we're just inspired and we're encouraged and challenged and motivated to live for you, to be sent ourselves. God, may the message never grow old. God, may we never just categorize this as something that happened 2,000 years ago, but God, may we see that we are sent today, and may we be on mission Lord, I pray for your people this morning around the world who are struggling, who are under persecution. Father, remind them of the reward that's before them. Father, I pray for the people who are being unfairly unfairly targeted today. God, may they uh, receive your grace and your mercy. And Lord, may, or more importantly, may some of these events turn them to you. And Lord, may all of us, those who are here this morning who have not given their lives to Christ, come to you today. Lord, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship him.